Welcome to part two of our What Does This Mean Wednesday look at how Luther's monasticism influenced his theology. Last week's What Does This Mean Wednesday episode looked at the biographical details of Luther's life, what led him from um, studying to be a lawyer to the monastery and what he found there and really the despair that he ended up at. So we get to part two, the cross-taught theology. Subtitled this, One of my co-workers said that our church members weren't allowed to dance or wear lipstick. Luther writes in the large catechism under the second commandment, The greatest abuse of the second commandment occurs in spiritual matters. These have to do with the conscience, when false preachers rise up and offer their lying vanities as God's word. What is Lutheran theology? What teaching or teachings make Lutheranism unique? I currently serve in Fairmont, a town of 10,000 and 14 or so Christian churches and ministries. Footnote number 22. Christian, in quotes. Much of what passes for Christianity is antinomian, that is, they throw out God's law, or politics in religious garb, or even anti-Trinitarian, but using Christian terms. The newest church in town is United Oneness Pentecostal Group, three blocks from us. Grace Tabernacle experience acts of grace, but they deny the Trinity. They say that God is only one, but not three persons, which means they are not Christian, no matter how many Christian terms they use. We also have a Mormon meeting house, and the Jehovah's Witnesses have been trying to make inroads for a while. With all these options, what makes that little Wisconsin Synod Church so different? Justification. Objective, completed, spoken by God as a forensic decree about all humanity, simply and only because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Justification completely and entirely by grace, received only through faith, not works. Justification as a statement by God on account of Christ, not as a treasury to be doled out, nor contingent upon one's life change, emotional response, or personal decision. Lutheran theology finds its center in justification, and every hallmark doctrine of Lutheran theology is intimately connected to justification whether our need for it, original sin, the way God accomplishes justification in our lives, the means of grace, our lives of sanctification, done joyfully because of our reconciled God, or the suffering of the cross, which is not taken as God's punishment, but rather as a gracious blessing from our Heavenly Father as He disciplines us and conforms us to Christ. If one were shopping for a church in Fairmont, that one teaching, justification, would instantly cut a dozen churches off the list. This teaching of justification is the real difference, the absolute difference. But that teaching is intimately connected to every other page of scripture, as well as everything we do as practices in our church. Footnote number 23, from Dr. John Brugge and his doctrinal brief entitled Agreement in Doctrine and Practice. When we speak about agreement in doctrine and practice, what we mean is that we practice what we teach. In the phrase, agreement in doctrine and practice, the word practice does not refer to practices, that is, 
It does not refer to customs or adiaphora, nor to particular applications of doctrinal principles. Agreement in practice means that a church actually puts its doctrinal position into practice in the daily life of the church. That teaching of justification is intimately connected to every other page of scripture, as well as everything we do in our practices as a church. Justification cannot be taught if there is no proper understanding of God's law, the inerrancy of scripture, the means of grace, or the role of good works in the Christian's life. A few particular doctrinal emphases can be seen from Luther's early life, and these are borne out in his later theology. Number one, original sin and conscience and natural knowledge of God. Martin Luther was plagued with guilt, and he knows that God is holy and unapproachable. Despite his best efforts, Luther can never exterminate evil tendency from his heart. In 1537, he writes, Human nature is blind, so that it does not know its own strength, or rather, sickness. Moreover, being proud, it thinks it knows and can do everything. God can cure this pride and ignorance by no readier remedy than by the publication of his law, from the bondage bondage of the will. And 1532, on Psalm 51, Even within ourselves we battle against the judgment of God, that in his gospel promises, as well as through the law, he accuses us of sin. In the saints, there is also this feeling that they will pray more diligently, believe more fully, and praise God when they see that they have pure hands and feelings, and that they are free of all sins. Though the Spirit is ruled by the Word and consents to it, still Paul confesses in Romans 7 that there is another law in his flesh, warring against the Spirit and the Word. Even the saints are aware of this perpetual contradiction in themselves, and they see it. No wonder, then, that this same contradiction comes from those who hate the word and depend on their orders and masses. Doctrinal emphasis numbers two and three. Justification. Number two. As a completed fact and received fully through faith apart from works. Luther's early life, monasticism, and priesthood were characterized by attempts to make himself righteous enough to stand in God's presence. And number three. The means of grace, that is, the gospel in word and sacrament, is the tool that God offers, or that the tool that God uses to offer, grant, and seal forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Luther's monastic life seems nearly empty of actual scripture study, but full of every other reading and act of devotion that the church had prescribed. Only when he becomes chair of Bible at Wittenberg University does it seem that Luther really digs into Scripture on a consistent basis. In the large catechism of 1928 or 29, Luther writes, Let this, then, be the sum of the second article. The little word, Lord, means simply the same as Redeemer. It means the one who has brought us from Satan to God, from death to life, from sin to righteousness, and who preserves us in the same. The entire gospel that we preach is based on this point, that we properly understand this article about Jesus as that upon which our salvation and all happiness rests. And in the small called articles, For Christ's merit is not obtained by our works or pennies, but from grace through faith, 
without money and without merit. It is offered not through the Pope's power, but through the preaching of God's word. Doctrinal emphasis number four, the vocation and the role of good works. Luther came to recognize that good works accomplish no spiritual good. That is, good works cannot accomplish or add to our justified status, which stands completed in Christ. Additionally, he came to speak highly of the doctrine of vocation, that all the monks and nuns were doing less good than the Christian mother caring for her child. Even here, especially here, his teaching of good works is directly a result of having been reconciled to God. Professor Cherney notes that vocation, and not, as is sometimes asserted, the quote-unquote priesthood of all believers, though the two doctrines are closely related, but vocation is the second most frequent emphasis in his writings, after justification by faith. Luther writes in a small called Articles, Monastic chapters and cloisters could produce pastors, preachers, and other ministers for the churches. They could also produce essential personnel for the secular government in cities and countries, as well as well-educated young women for mothers, housekeepers, and such. If these institutions will not serve this purpose, it is better to abandon them or tear them down than to have their blasphemous, humanly invented services regarded as something better than the ordinary Christian life. Finally, doctrinal emphasis number five, the cross. Although much of his suffering was the terrors of conscience, which the false doctrine of his day did not address properly, Luther realized that the cross is a necessary consequence of the Christian life, not merely the result of bad theology. This recognition was discussed quite early in the Heidelberg Disputation and characterized much of Luther's theology for the rest of his life especially in relation to the cross's suffering as destructive to any notion of meritorious works, which is to say, the fact that we suffer under the cross really makes us despair of earning God's favor and rather casting all of our hope and faith upon Christ rather than upon ourselves. In the Heidelberg Disputation, Numbers 19 and 20, Luther said, That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. But he deserves to be called a theologian who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. And number 21. A theology of glory which is the opposite of the theology of the cross. Theology of glory looks for success and and happiness and joy in external circumstances, whereas the theology of the cross recognizes that in this world we will have trouble and pain, but our God loves us, and he has said so and promised so in his word, and that word must remain true, even if the whole world were to call us a liar. I know that God loves me because Jesus died and rose for me. That's the idea. So a theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. That was from April of 1518. I have two footnotes here. 
One is the citation from bookofconcord.org. But footnote number 27. From the disputation on this thesis, this is clear. He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. These are the people whom the Apostle calls enemies of the cross of Christ, Philippians 3. For they hate the cross and suffering, and they love works and the glory of their works. Thus they call the good of the cross evil, and the evil of a deed they call good. God can be found only in suffering and the cross, as has already been said before. Therefore, the friends of the cross say that the cross is good, and works are evil. For through the cross, works are dethroned, and the old Adam, who is especially puffed up by works, the old Adam is crucified. It is impossible for a person not to be puffed up by his good works unless he has first been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil until he knows that he is worthless and that his works are not his, but God's. More on that in the appendix in part three, which will be part of next week's What Does This Mean Wednesday? These five points appear to be the major doctrinal impact of Luther's monastic life. Original sin coupled with the conscience and the natural knowledge of God. Point two, justification. Point three, the means of grace. Point four, vocation and the role of good works. And point five, the cross. And these particular teachings characterize our work and worship today. Consider the average Lutheran worship service. We begin with our confession of original and actual sin. I am by nature sinful, original sin, and I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, actual sin. Obviously, both are real sin. But we confess both what we are by nature, which is guilty in God's eyes, and the deeds which we think, say, and do, which are also guilty in God's eyes. Secondly, completed objective justification in Christ. The pastor announces, Your sins are forgiven. For the sake of Jesus Christ. The means of grace, emphasis number three. These words are written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The practice of holy baptism and holy communion are prominent in the regular worship life of the church, not shuttled off to the side or ignored when the preacher seeks to appease people who want more applicable sermons. To the contrary, forgiveness, accomplished in Christ and distributed again in word and sacrament, will naturally lead to more application of that forgiveness and explanation of what that forgiveness means in my life. See Romans chapter 6 for an excellent example. An object of reality, the resurrection of Christ, made personal through objective, physical word together with the water, baptism, conveying an actual status in a real spiritual resurrection. This is where we find the preaching of Christian sanctification, of new obedience. Christ rose, and this is who you are. Fourthly, 
vocation and the role of good works. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The placement of this liturgical song is especially appropriate as we conclude the service of the Word and then seek to serve God and others through prayer and offerings. Finally, the theology of the cross. At every point of Christian worship, the Christian is forced to rely upon the Word of God, even and especially when that Word contradicts my own feelings or human reason. The Lord is plainly revealed where he is most hidden. That concludes today's portion of our look at Luther's monastic life and its influence on his theology. Be sure to tune in next week as we get into the parallels for today and the modern applications for what it means to be a Lutheran and to follow in the theology of Martin Luther rather than reiterating the life of Martin Luther in an empty fashion. And we'll probably end up with a part four as the appendix, because the appendix includes a number of different notes, um, some good examples and some not-so-good examples, that will help to clarify the parallels that we'll talk about in part three. God bless your day. Jerusalem, the Thanks for listening to Green Pastures with Jesus, the audio home of Shepherd of the Lakes Lutheran Church of Fairmont, Minnesota. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our website, www.shepherdofthelakes.net. Pass that along to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archives section at our website for previous podcasts. You can find us 9.30 a.m. Sunday mornings at 323 East 1st Street in Fairmont, just up the hill from Richard's Towing. Any questions, contact me, Pastor Hagen, 507-236-9572. God bless your day. What bliss beyond compare?